continuing in our Galatians series, talking about life in the Spirit. And I want to sort of, uh, I want to sort of start out by, by asking us a question maybe about the way that we align our lives. If we, at some point in our lives, we kind of have to have this inner dialogue where we, in a monologue, where we sort of decide, okay, how are we going to do things um, in our lives? And one of the questions we have to answer is what rules really matter? Like, for instance, when we see, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the signs posted on what speed to go, we have to decide how much that rule matters. Now, I find that that rule becomes very subjective depending on where I'm going, what time it is, and how long I have to get there, right? This is a calculation that we all make in our lives. But there are other ones, there are other rules in our world that we know, hey, these things really matter and versus these things don't matter. And all of us in our lives, we spend a lot of time trying to decide what rules really matter. If you are a parent, this is very clear with your children because you ask them to do something, they sort of reinterpret whatever rule you're giving them and say, how do I think I should respond to what I'm being told or what I'm being asked? We have to decide what rules really matter. Now, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a series of questions and talk about our understanding of certain things today, and hopefully uh, by the end of this, it'll all, it'll all make sense. But the text that we read, and by the way, the song that we sang, the Revelation song, it's such a powerful song. It's a song that we find in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 4, when everybody is standing around the throne of God, giving worship and praise. That song always gives me chills, even though it's quite an old song now. Many of us have been singing this for so many years, but it talks about this idea of standing around the throne and saying, holy, 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 this moment of absolute freedom that we all look forward to at the end of our lives. And then the text today, Galatians 5 and verse 1, it is for freedom that you've been set free. Why would you go back to the yoke of slavery? Why is it hard for us to understand freedom? We hear this word all the time, don't we? We're, we're a free country. We live in a place with freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And we throw that word freedom around a lot. And then on certain days, we say we celebrate our freedom. The problem is, is that a lot of times we struggle to understand freedom because we've never experienced the counterpart to it. Okay? It's hard to know something without experiencing the others. Let me give you an example. Haley always tells me a story about when she grew up and she, you know, had Barbies. She said she had like two or three Barbies, right? She'd have like two girls and one boy, and then they'd have like a bunch of outfits. And everything you wanted to accomplish with any storyline you had with these Barbies had to be accomplished through these three Barbies, right? Now, as parents, we think it's great. We want to give our kids everything, right? And maybe you grew up in a place where you didn't have a lot, and so your, your vow when you made when you were young was, hey, when I have kids one day, I'm going to shower them with blessings and shower them with gifts. And so now we have rooms and closets and tubs filled with toys, and we tell our kids, go and play with your toys. My kids do not have three Barbies. They have 30 Barbies, right? And part of studies have said they have so many choices that they actually can't make decisions. And we wonder, I, you know, we, we were so appreciative as kids because, you know, we had a, a twig and a brick to play with. Now we've given our kids everything, okay? And we, we can't understand, why do you not appreciate having them? Well, because you don't know the other side. You can't enjoy, if you've just been handed everything your entire life, how can you ever live in a world that appreciates what it is to not have something? 
And it comes from a good place. It comes with good intention. But freedom is a very hard thing to understand if you've never experienced the opposite. This is why understanding slavery is so difficult. Because as far as I can tell, none of us in this room have been slaves. None of us have lived in that society or in that culture. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, and I'm not saying it's invalid. What I'm saying is it's very hard for us to even talk about freedom and slavery because we don't have context for these things. We don't live in a world of extreme oppression, in a world where you, you can't read your Bible or, go to, or marry. or have. We don't live with some of those things, and so we're trying to understand something that we have no experience of. And yet these are the words, freedom, slavery, that Paul's going to use because he somehow thinks that when we connect with these words, we'll understand what God is actually doing. You know, we need to understand the mentality of slaves. If you read the Bible, if you look back even at American history or other histories, there's a mentality that goes along with slavery. The mentality of brokenness, the, the mentality of oppression. And what happens is, is that they, they live in a world that they're not allowed to do things. The, the constraints are, are very solid and real. And when you free people, a lot of times people think, well, if there is a, a slave environment, and maybe some of the context today would be perhaps human trafficking, when these people are released back and they're told, you're now free, you, you have no master anymore, you are your own master, people really struggle. Because it's hard to get away from that mentality that mentality of, um, of bondage. Now, I want to um, look at a couple things here. I, I want to go back to the book of Numbers. Now, in, in Numbers chapter 11, we see a story of the Israelites after the 10 plagues, after 400 years in Egypt, they are now led out into Sinai, and they're led out into the desert. They cross the Red Sea. You know, there's this miraculous moment that you see in the movie Prince of Egypt. It's really exciting and good. And now they're in the desert, right? And they've got like shelters and tents and some basic things set up. And they're, for the first time, they are free people. They're not fully free yet, if that makes sense. That's going to come a little bit later. But they're no longer oppressed by the Egyptians. But the mentality is still there. In Numbers chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it's just, this is just so who people are. It says, now the people, the Israelites, complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. It's kind of a warning moment. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed that the Lord uh, and, the, and the, the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taberah where the fire from the Lord came and burned them up. But then rabble or complaining began within them, and they began to crave other food. And again the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. It's kind of a sad story because what ultimately is happening here is that they have been led to freedom. I mean, this is what they've prayed for for a long time. They've asked God to free them from Egypt. Now they're free from Egypt and they're in the desert and God is taking care of their basic needs. They have, you know, the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day providing heat 
and shade. God is feeding them. He's giving them water from the rocks. It's a beautiful thing. And what they do is they start complaining and they start listing menu items, ingredients. Oh, remember when? You know, Egypt really wasn't that bad, was it? It was a, I mean, you remember the cucumbers? My goodness, the cucumbers. I don't know that I've ever been that excited about a cucumber in my life. But they have a misunderstanding of freedom. God has led them out to be his people, and they can't wait five minutes to see what God is going to do. God is taking care of them, but they don't like it. They would rather, you see the mentality? We'd rather be slaves. We'd rather know that we're going to be fed and have no freedom and no say in our lives. I think we do this too. We come up with excuses. We come up with obstacles. We come up with, with resistance. Whenever somebody is willing to lead us to something new, we're like, no, 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 I don't want to go there. There's a, there's a great uh, a story, it happens to be a historical and accurate story, about a man named Hernan Cortez. Now, Cortez is a name that we, we probably should know if you know anything about history. It happened about, you know, in the, in the 1500s. Cortez, what it was, a Spanish conquistador. And this is a day, uh, the Portuguese were great navigators of the waters, and then the Spanish kind of took their cues from them and decided to build this huge navy. And they, the goal of this navy was to go and explore the world. And so Cortez was part of a detachment that went down to, uh, to South America because they were going to go and study the Aztecs. And they had heard about this, this amazing city, this mythical city of gold that was hidden from everybody except the Aztecs, known as the place of Cibola. And so they, they launched their boats uh, a number of them, and they land in Veracruz, which is now Mexico, although it wasn't, it wasn't uh, named that at the time, and they meet the, the Aztec people who are going to take them on this journey, and then Cortez does something amazing. In the harbor where they've come in, he scuttles the ships, which is a nice way of saying he burns them. He burns the ships that they have come on. What message is that sending? We're not going back. The only way is forward. There's something powerful about that moment where they burn the ships and they sink in the harbor. Because that's how you overcome the mentality of slavery. You take away all the outs. And that's what Israel has, right? They've crossed the Red Sea. They've come into the desert and God says, we're going forward to the promised land. And they're saying, let's go back. That's, that's, a, that's a slave mentality. You know, sometimes when we think about the law, in order for us to understand the law, not, not of our world, but of, of the Bible, the law that happens at Mount Sinai with Moses, we need to actually understand what's happening. A lot of times we think, well, God's kind of mean and God's kind of cruel, and he's just giving them a bunch of rules now and saying, hey, this is, you know, I've led you to freedom, but now you have to do all these things that I'm telling you to do. You see, laws are designed to protect us. And I realize that there's flaws with that. That's why we have amendments and other types of things and exceptions to things. But the reality is laws tell us where the boundaries are. And so when God gives them the law on Mount Sinai, what he is saying is, this is, how, this is what it means to be my people. And they don't know how to be a nation, a free nation, because they've never been a free nation. How do, how do free people take sick days? How do free people go on vacation or take care of their health needs? Because none of those things happen when you're a slave, nobody cares about you. You're a piece of property. You get sick, you suck it up, or you die. You don't get days off. You work because that's your job. That's your identity.
And when God takes them to Sinai, he says, I'm giving you a new identity. And they've been slaves for so long that they can't even imagine or understand what it means to be free. That's why God gives them the law. You know, in the Gospels, when you read the story of Jesus, Jesus is often confronted with this question by the religious leaders, where they're asking him and saying, Jesus, what laws really matter? What are the rules that actually matter? And they're always trying to trap him in some way, trying to get him to answer incorrectly. But in Matthew chapter 22, <coughs> there's a story here about some of the, the religious leaders. They've had an argument all the way through Matthew 22. And they get to this end part here, and they're asking him this question, what rules really matter? But in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 35, it says, one of them, an expert in the law, okay, it tells you exactly what line of questioning is about to happen. The expert in the law tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, there's something really interesting about this, because Jesus doesn't answer this question even the way we would expect him to. He says, number one, the greatest commandment is to love God. That's it. You love God. And in case there's any confusion, you love him completely with all your being and your soul and your mind and your strength and your imagination and your talents and your giftedness and your money and your every part of you should have a piece that is devoted to the priority of God. And he says, this is the greatest commandment. And that's why when you read the Bible and you say, what is the greatest commandment? It's easy. We teach our kids, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That's what we teach them. And then he adds something to it and he says, the second commandment is almost as important as the first one. In fact, they're intrinsically tied together. You have the great commandment here, but number two is that you should love people, that you should love your neighbor the way that you love yourself. And we call this the great commission, right? When Jesus stands on the mountain outside of Bethany right before he ascends into heaven, he tells them, go and make disciples, go and love people so that people will love me. This is called the Great Commission. And Jesus seems to think that the Great Commandment and the Great Commission are the two most important things. And everything else, he says, lies on these two foundational pillars. And if you, if you don't get these two right, nothing else really matters. Now, notice it doesn't say the greatest commandment is to follow God or to keep the laws or to be obedient. Now, I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but Jesus puts those secondary to everything else. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, he says, Seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness, and everything else will find its place. There, there's place for laws and rules and ways to live and how to take vacation days and all that kind of stuff. But start with the big stuff first. Now, I think in churches, isn't it amazing, but most of our sermons around how to better follow God or how to keep laws better or how to be more obedient. 
And yet Jesus doesn't say that. He says, no, the most important thing is that you love God with every fiber of your being, and then you love each other as best you can, and that's really all it's about. It seems so simple and obscure almost. But Jesus says that's what really matters. You see, one of the things that Paul's going to echo here, but Jesus has really said throughout the life of his ministry, is that God gave us the freedom to choose to love him so that we would choose to love him. Okay, let me say that again because it's a little confusing, right? God has given us the freedom to choose to love him in hopes that we will choose to love him. This is why Galatians 5 and verse 1, it starts with a word, uh, uh, kind of circular reasoning, if you will, and it doesn't quite make sense when you just read it once. You've got to read it a few times. But Galatians 5, verse 1, it says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. What he's saying is the motivation for God giving us freedom is that we could have freedom. That's why God gave it to us. That it's kind of you give your kids gifts so that they will have things. That's what he's saying here. God is, not, God is not playing this cosmic game where he says, I'm going to give you something, and, and, and it's really kind of twisted. God says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That was the goal. It wasn't so that God would enslave us just under a new narrative. It was that we would have the freedom to reject God as well as choose God. This is why a lot of people don't understand, or maybe, maybe, uh, maybe we haven't done a good job as theologians explaining this. People go, why did God even put that tree in the garden that they had a place not to choose him, or that they could choose to sin? Why would God do that? Why didn't God just take the tree out, and then we could all just live in Eden? Well, it doesn't make sense. It's not right, because in order to fully choose someone, you have to have the ability to fully reject them. Listen, if you're married to somebody, the reason why you're married to them is because you chose to be married to them, and there's power in that. These are not arranged marriages. You're not forced to do anything. You have the freedom to choose. Now, you may not like your choice some days. Now we're preaching. But you know what I mean. Listen, if you're stranded on a desert island, there's there's two of you. And you decide to, it's not really a choice, right? There's only, what are the options? But we live in a world that we choose. The motivation for freedom is is freedom. There's no big secret here or big, big door to unlock. But listen to what Paul goes on to say. Now, I'm going to warn you, he kind of goes from sort of a PG to a mature audience in the next part of this. And it's about a topic that we really don't like preaching about or talking about. Um, it's about circumcision. I don't know that I've ever preached a great sermon on that. Um, I don't know that one can, to be honest. But listen to what Paul says. After he said, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free, let's not be burdened by slavery. Then he uses this imagery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will have no value to you at all. Again, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obligated to obey the whole law, You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith 
expressing itself through love. You're running a good race, but who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am preaching, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. And as for those agitators, I wish they would just go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Okay, not the best like passage of scripture ever. Let's just be honest, right? But in order for us to really understand this passage, we need to understand circumcision. Circumcision is a covenant given to Abraham many, many years before. Okay? It's a covenant that represents, uh, re- represents that they, they are living under promise with God. I don't fully understand everything about it. Okay? I just don't. But it's a covenant of promise while they are enslaved to sin. Now what happens in this story is that he is saying, listen, our churches are filled with Jews and Gentiles, and that's hard enough as it is. And now we're taking two cultures, Jews who were circumcised according to the temple, and that was part of the, 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 the result of the promise, and Gentiles who were not. And now they're blending together, and they're saying, what are we supposed to do? Do the Gentiles need to become good Jews before they can be Christians? And, and they're having problems with these things. But he is saying, as long as we're looking back to the old things, we are enslaving ourselves to them. What he is ultimately sharing in this passage is that the greatest covenant that we have is in Christ. Jesus did something on the cross that abolished this law. Not that we don't have to keep any of it and that everything's right anymore, but he's saying Jesus is the greatest covenant because he is God. And our primary goal is to love God. And Jesus is a part of that. And he's saying what we're doing is we're squabbling about leeks and onions and cucumbers and circumcision. And the problem is we don't understand covenant. Jesus gave his life so that we could love the Father freely. In fact, when they were in Egypt, they weren't allowed to love any god but the Egyptian gods. They're free. Then they get to the desert and the problems change. They have the full ability to love God, but they they quarrel about the wrong things. We do the same because we don't understand the magnitude of covenant. You know, one thing that Paul says in this text, which is really kind of odd and weird, he says, you guys are obsessed with circumcision. I know we we do that today for, for health reasons and other types of things, doesn't carry the same weight as it did back then because back then all it represented was covenant yes there were some good things and some positive things that you know i guess health-wise happened there but that wasn't the primary focus and when paul writes it here he goes you guys are like you, you guys are worried about the wrong thing you're still worried about circumcision you know what i i wish you would just keep cutting oh. this is where paul you know paul was married wife would have said, honey, there's a better way to say that, right? Let's call that plan B. But he's trying to get a point across. He's trying to say, you're so obsessed with how much or how little you're going to cut on these young boys 
you're missing the point. You're missing what it's really about. And you're, you're going back to something that is a law rather than stepping into something that is covenant. This is why when he starts in Galatians 5 and verse 1, I mean, <clears throat> I imagine Paul's like screaming this. It is for freedom. This is like the Braveheart quote of his book. It's for freedom that you've been set free. Why would you go backwards? Why do you want these things that enslave you, that have enslaved you for thousands of years? You've begged for freedom for so long. Now I'm giving it to you, and you're going, I wonder if that was better. This is, it's for freedom that you've been set free. Don't be yoked again by the burden of slavery. But we're people who understand law very well. And the goal here is for us to start understanding grace. Watch what happens in the text. In verse 4 of Galatians 5, he says, you are trying to be justified by the law. In other words, code, you're trying to get God's attention by being obedient enough. If I just do enough good things in the week and less bad things, somehow God's going to love me and I'm going to be good enough. But he says when you do that, when you have that slave mentality, you're alienating yourself from Christ and everything that he did. You're falling away from grace. And the only way to experience grace is when you understand what God has freed you and what he has freed you from. And when you step into that and you stop trying to be good enough and you just love God well and some days you're going to do that very well and some days you're really not going to do that well. Don't go backwards. And then he finally ends by saying we've got to start understanding faith a little better. We've got to see what God is really doing in this thing called faith. And in verse 6 he says, this, and I'm going to cut out a little bit in the middle, but he says, for in Christ, that's, that's Paul, one of Paul's favorite lines, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You see, what we do is we twist that around, don't you? If I have enough faith, then I'll be able to love God well, or if I have enough faith, then God will love me. Paul says, no. Faith is about starting with love, and whatever actions flow from there, that is what faith is. It's an expression of the love that you already have God. There's something powerful and beautiful about this text. And when we kind of sweep away some of the bad language and some of the difficult imagery here, we find these gems about what Paul is calling the church to be. He's saying faith that grows from a place of loving God fully, like Jesus said, is the best thing ever. It leads us to freedom. It means we're choosing freedom. We're choosing freedom. We haven't got it all worked out yet. And maybe today you are enslaved in sin. Maybe today there are things in your life, you, you feel trapped in some area of your life. When we love God well and we love each other well, we start to experience freedom. We start to be released from entrapment. Love God. Love people. Do, do your best to choose faith. And God will meet you in the midst of that and show you what to do. So, Father, today, I thank you for meeting us in this place. Thank you for walking with us. 
difficult passages of scripture that, that maybe we don't understand at first blush, but that lead us to lead us to a great truth. Father, sometimes we uh, we probably talk about freedom in, in bad contexts, and we don't really understand what we're saying. And maybe our views of of the freedoms that we experience are are not actually real and true. But today, Father, I pray that you would solidify us, that you would start us at the cross of Jesus. That gives us an opportunity to be in covenant, to be free. It doesn't mean that our lives are not going to be hard or that we're not going to struggle with sin or that there's not going to be a lot of other things going on. But Father, I just pray today that you would show us what we are enslaved to you would help break some of those bonds of things we're trying to go back to. And that today you would just meet us in your unconditional and abundant love and encourage us to do the same for you. Please bless us as we continue to worship. Please lift our souls, our spirits, our minds, our hearts. May we love you well. We pray this